Future trading involves risk and is not suitable for all investors. Content provided in this segment is meant for educational purposes and is not a solicitation to buy or sell commodities. Hello and welcome to From the Furrow, brought to you by Everag Insights. Each week, we talk with subject matter experts on news and topics affecting the grain markets. I'm your host, Britt O'Connell. Let's get started with a review of the markets. Today is July 5th, 2023. Currently, July 23 corn is down 7 cents, trading 5.50 and a quarter, with new crop December 23 corn down 5 cents, trading 4.88 and a half. July 23 soybeans are down 2 cents, trading 15.60 even, with November 23 new crop soybeans up 3 cents, trading 13.56 and a half. Turning to our guest this week, it's our privilege to have our in-house Grain Market Intelligence Director, Shelby Myers, with us. Thanks for joining us today, Shelby. Hey, Britt. Thanks for having me. Shelby, we had a very interesting, or rather two interesting, USDA reports last week, Friday. It shocked the market, particularly on the acreage front. And so I want to dive into those numbers with you first. Can you give us a quick breakdown of that USDA data and your key takeaways? Yeah, June 30th is the USDA acreage report. This is a survey base report that comes out following the March prospective planting acres. The way I like to say it is that in March, USDA is surveying farmers to see what they intend to plant. And the June report is the follow-up survey. So what did you actually plant? And what farmers said they actually planted was 94.1 million acres of corn. I think that's where the market took a whole new level of shock uh, because analyst expectations were about 91.9 million acres. And as we've been watching planting progress over the last two months, no one really expected much range beyond that, you know, the range of corn expectations was capped at 93 million acres. And so this is well, well above those expectations and why it shocked the market. The other shock was that farmers reported planting 83 and a half million acres of soybeans, which was well below the expectation of 87.7 million acres and well below what they said in March at 87 and a half million acres. The other thing on that too, is that the range of estimates for soybeans was the bottom end was 87 million acres. So no one expected any of this to change. And there really hasn't been a whole lot of news coming out of of the heartland and and frankly, across the US that was going to indicate more or less acres in the corn and soybean realm. And that's why it was a big shock. All right. So let's talk about these big changes that were announced. As we look at an additional 2 million acres of corn, a loss of 4 million acres of soybeans, what crops did those acres transition into or how did that shuffle kind of play out, do you suspect? Well, let's start with the transition from what farmers said they intended to plant in March to what they reported in June. And a lot of the shifts occurred in some key areas for soybeans in particular, We saw big shifts in North Dakota and Texas, and my assumption to that, especially North Dakota, is weather was a really big factor. They were delayed planting a lot longer than the rest of the Midwest, and so 
they were able to get a lot more corn in a lot quicker and soybeans just kind of didn't quite get to those. And there's a chance that there are more acres left to be planted. We did see that note from USDA that there are just over 8 million acres left of soybeans that farmers reported are left to be planted. Um, and that's a box figure that was just included in the report starting in 2020. So a little bit of history of the left to be planted acre numbers is that that box was included upon request of stakeholders to USDA post the 2019 delayed planting when there were a lot of uncertainties about what did get planted, what farmers still intend to plant even after their crop insurance dates. And so that was included after that in the 20 million permit plant acres that were filed that year. So back to our soybean shifts. So we saw the weather delay North Dakota. Uh, Texas has about 27% less soybeans than they reported intending to have back in March. We'll see some of those shifts to corn as uh, they have 22% more corn planted than they said they were going to in March. I think a lot of that is due to the shift in the soybean to corn ratio, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, I'm sure. But a lot of people signaling moving away from soybeans to corn in key planting weeks. Uh, the other area that we saw a decrease in soybean acres is just, you know, they were single digit reductions across the Midwest, ne Nebraska to Ohio, and then Minnesota all the way down to Arkansas and Louisiana even. You know, single digit shifts lower, but when you talk about the quantity of soybean acres that those states cover, those are going to be a couple thousand acres that really add up to a reduction of 4 million acres. And so we see those changes. And then on the corn side, a lot of southern corn instead of southern cotton was planted. And so you have a lot of what I like to call fringe corn acres, uh, not necessarily your corn belt, but you look on the western United States, a lot of irrigated corn. And then the southern states that tend to consider trade-offs between cotton, corn, and soybeans picked corn this year. So as we look at the change in acres, obviously on the back side of the report, we saw a big move higher in soybeans. We saw a drastic continued drop in corn after it had already lost about 70 cents earlier in the week. I want to pick up and talk about that corn bean ratio that you alluded to here in a minute, but let's talk about the quarterly stocks portion of that report as well quick. What were the results of that and key takeaways there? Yeah, on quarterly stocks across the board, corn stocks, soybean stocks, and wheat stocks were all on the either below expectations or on the lower end of expectations. Corn stocks came in at just over 4 billion bushels. That's going to be the lowest corn stock numbers in June that we've seen since 2014. Um, it's 6% lower than corn stocks at the same point last year uh, and reports about a 45% disappearance rate compared to stocks reported in March. On soybean stocks, they were lower than expectations, about a 53% disappearance rate from March, down 18% compared to the same month last year. You know, I think corn's the bigger story in that, that we're seeing kind of an indication of stronger basis numbers that should have alluded to this disappearance rate, but also meaning we're seeing a lot of corn going into feed. You know, we're dwindling down to the lower ends of the bin and, and that sort of thing. So something to kind of highlight on that front. And then on the soybean stock side, this is really attributed to we've seen record crush numbers over the last 
three months. Um, and that is really the big storyline on there is you continue to see the strength for old crop soybeans and old crop soybean demand in general. And that both of those numbers really put a bullish sentiment to the corn swimming market. Obviously, the corn bullish sentiment was offset drastically by the acreage report. The bullish sentiment on soybeans helped drive those acreage sentiments higher. And you saw the two commodity prices diverge very quickly on Friday. So we had somewhat tighter supplies in old crop, but projected bigger stocks in corn, certainly for new crop potentially tighter stocks in soybeans. We've still got the yield equation that we've got to get ironed out. But I think that's a big question mark right now. As we talk with producers across the country, everybody is, to a greater degree than usual, wondering what their yield potential is out there. And you know, when you look at the growing season, it's been a bit unique. Most years aren't perfect, but this year I feel like we've had a plethora of things thrown at this crop. We had widespread, I'll call it emergence stand issues. I've heard about those across the country in various pockets. We had early season dryness. We had wind events in some areas. We had hail events in some areas. We've now seen, you know, some moisture come back into the equation and everybody's wondering, were those early season events yield limiting or do we still have, relatively speaking, a lot of the same yield potential that we had? And We may not know the answer to that question until we start to see combines roll across the fields. But on the yield front, Shelby, let's talk about the new crop corn balance sheet. So yield is currently at 181. Nobody really, even when that number was first announced, believed that that was going to be realized. So we've got to see that number very likely come down, especially if crop condition scores are telling of anything. But there's also this demand side of the equation that has been the big question mark and really the big drag on the corn market. So Break down for me a little bit. We've got 94 million acres of corn planted now. Talk a little on the yield and then talk specifically to the demand side of the balance sheet and how you kind of see things shaking out there. Sure thing. And Britt, I think we we missed even a few of the weather events prior to it getting dry. Remember two or three months ago when we said it was too wet? To get in the fields to plant. And I think you hit it on the nail. We've seen every storyline we possibly could happen throughout this year. And they just keep boiling into, you know, what else can be thrown at us on the corn balance sheet? Yes. Everybody looked at the 181.5 bushels per acre trend yield and said, yeah, not really. Primarily because that 10 year average is closer to 171. We've never gone higher than 176. And those were years 2017 and 2018, which, you know, more or less we could argue were near perfect growing seasons. So when we look at yield and drop it lower, there are a lot of questions about how low do you go on corn yields? I think you you can make a case for it's been too wet, then it got too dry, then you can throw in some diseases in addition to Did the right rain come at the right time? Are we going to see the pollination that we need to? You know, there's a lot of agronomists that will tell you that ear size and and yield potentials determined in May and June. And so have we have we missed the boat? You know, I've been kind of saying to a lot of our clients around that. I'd be really disappointed to think that we didn't learn anything from 2012 drought and that we don't have more tolerant varieties. Surely we learned a lesson in that those varieties have developed so much in the last 10 years that we can be a little bit more resilient. So yeah, maybe we're not talking 176, but I've tossed out there a 168 yield. 
that still would be on the lower end, but not the lowest and could really attribute to a lot of the things that we've seen that we haven't had near perfect growing conditions. And that's how trend yield is determined is that they have to be perfect growing conditions to hit 181.5. So everybody's going to start writing it off and, and probably did when we started having higher drought monitor ratings. You know, plug for your audience too, that if anybody's already a subscriber to the EverAg Insights portal, check out our drought monitor because we'll take the data and put it in a, a chart visualization that can help you look back at years past and in the quantity and severity that we're looking at this year. Um, we got a lot of rains in the last week and a half that I'm really anxious to see our drought results for this week because we've had those rains and see what areas had enough rain to reduce their drought status. We had quite a few areas that were pushed up into the D2 status. Does that get downgraded now because of some of these rains? We'll see, but that, that's going to play into this. And something that I've been kind of exploring too is we pay a lot of attention to crop conditions that are good to excellent. Well, we can already pull out the excellent crop because excellent means we would have been on track for 181 and a half bushels per acre. So let's look at what fair and good condition looks like. And frankly, if we if we narrow it down to those two conditions, we're tracking pretty closely to the five-year average. So we won't have a catastrophic yield deficit, but I think 168 is fair. And, and for that comparison, I'd point everybody to 2015 and look at yield results then and kind of consider their crop during that year. So that's on the supply side. Say we get to 168 and at 94 million acres, we harvest, you know, maybe 92%, which is what's forecast in the acreage report as well, that of the 94 million corn acres, we're going to harvest 86.3 million acres of corn. It puts overall supply at just under 16 billion bushels. We mentioned the demand side, and I've been talking about this a lot with all of our folks at EverAg and a lot of our clients that the demand for U.S. corn right now is just not excited. It lacks a lot of enthusiasm and we can talk about this a little bit more, but it's something that we're going to keep an eye on for a long time, especially in the geopolitical world, the South American competition world, you know, all the things that influence corn demand. It is very elastic right now and it's something that growers need to keep an eye on. The feed and residual category is certainly going to be dependent on all of our livestock inventories domestically but also price. And we've had a bit of an inflated price over the last couple of years, primarily to what we saw throughout COVID and then a lot of our buying sprees. But then we also, you know, if that number gets lower, that price point gets lower, that we see more feed purchases, that might help a little bit. Ethanol is forecast to be neutral with the last two years of ethanol use. You have to wonder, have we started reaching our maximum ethanol use for what we're at and what the market demands? And is that a cap that we're going to see, you know, 5.3 billion bushels as the maximum capacity for ethanol in the U.S.? I don't know that. I'm not making that statement. But, you know, that's the trend right now that we've seen if we go on 2021 and 2022. And then the real category that has me kind of raising some flags and saying, hey, take a look at this, are our corn exports. We've watched old crop corn exports really struggle this year at 1.725 billion bushels, nowhere near the record 2.7 billion bushels. And so 
with USDA forecasting right now, 2.1 billion bushels, I have a hard time seeing where those purchasers are going to come from. You also have factors like Mexico expecting a bigger corn crop this year. And so, you know, they're our top export destination for U.S. corn. Do they not need to import nearly as much corn from the U.S. this upcoming year? And then where do you make that up, especially if we continue to have geopolitical tensions with China, who was our second largest corn purchaser in the last couple of years? And so those those two things really push me to say 2.1 billion bushels on the demand side isn't as likely as maybe we thought when first proposed earlier this year. So Shelby, if we made a few revisions, take yield down back towards that 168 number, as you suggested, leave feed and residual be and leave ethanol for now, but make that big revision in exports. And likely the USDA, of course, does that in steps, not in one fail swoop. But nonetheless, that takes our ending stocks closer to 1.89 billion bushels and stocks to use closer to 13.4%. Can you give us a year that that might be similar to? There's a saying in our industry that often markets don't repeat themselves, but rather they often rhyme. What would that kind of feel like? Yeah, I've been keeping my eye on 2014 and 2015. I'm hesitant to say that that puts us in line with 2019 because 2019 is a year that all agriculture producers need to stick an asterisk on and say, remember, though, that we had 20 million prevent plant acres. So I would liken it back further to 2014, 2015. That was about 12 and a half percent stocks to use ratios. Um, a little bit lower ending stocks at 1.7 billion bushels. Exports are a little bit more in line with where I think expectations could be, ranging from 1.8 billion bushels to 1.9 billion bushels. There was also what I find really interesting for those two years that might help the demand balance sheet a little bit is that the feed to residual use uh, is a little bit lower those two years than what we have seen 2017 through. 2021. Um, our feed and residual use was closer to 5.3, 5.2 billion bushels, whereas right now we're forecasting 5.6 billion bushels. So maybe, you know, something more or less to compare to, but our supplies were were elevated a little bit more there, not nearly as many corn planted acres, but certainly higher yields than what we're expecting. So I'd play around with those two and say the demand side looks a lot more familiar to the 2014-2015 era, even with as high of supply side as we're expecting in 2023. Excellent. Well, we'll certainly all be watching and monitoring that new crop balance sheet. It's going to beg the attention of buyers and sellers alike. And frankly, volatility may persist for a number of months here as the market tries to navigate this dance between projected supply and projected demand. If we transition a little bit, let's talk to the corn-soybean ratio. You alluded to it earlier on when we saw this big market move, that ratio widened back in favor of soybeans. Talk a little bit about that and how you think that could play out longer term. Yeah, we've been monitoring the soybean to corn ratio throughout uh, last fall into the spring. It's a good measure for expected acreage because Producers can kind of compare and contrast where the break-even point between the two commodities is and how they would fare better or worse if they were to plant one over the other. Um, this tends to be concentrated in the Midwest, and some farmers are really rigid in their use of 
I'm only doing 50% corn and 50% soybeans and I swap the fields every year. Whereas other farmers say, I'm going to use the market volatility to my advantage and try to take advantage of an opportunity. So we've been monitoring that throughout the year and noticed that for a lot of this year, the soybean to corn ratio has favored planting soybeans. And we saw that through the last few weeks of February into the first few weeks of March. I think that's where a lot of the March perspective plantings sentiment came is that, you know, we're going to match soybean planted levels from last year, um, not have nearly as many corn acres and, you know, really see a high, high production crop. What is interesting and something that I kind of picked up on after the report is that if you highlight that first week in May, what's really interesting is that corn planting progress jumped from 26% to 49% and soybeans jumped 19% to 35%. But it's also when we can highlight that same week that the soybean to corn ratio dramatically shifted away from soybeans to corn. That can't be a coincidence. And you got to wonder, was it a shift too in planting decisions where farmers were looking at the markets, they were monitoring the rate at which they could plant and saying, hey, I'm going to switch some of these acres away from soybeans to corn, take advantage of corn prices that I'm seeing and jump on that bandwagon. And that's how we resulted in 2 million more acres of corn and 4 million fewer acres of soybeans. That's a great question. And, and we may never know the answer to that. But the fact is more producers planted corn this year than they did soybeans. Let's shift gears just a little bit. It's maybe surprising to a lot of folks that we saw this sizable reduction in soybean acres, especially considering the positive rhetoric that once existed around the addition of soybean crushed facilities across the country. The EPA pushed out some disappointing news. Break all that down for me. Kind of give us a, an update on where you think that situation is heading and whether or not soybeans are going to be able to kind of claw back some acres in the coming years. So about two weeks ago, the EPA released their final renewable volume obligation numbers that set the minimum floor of blending for renewable fuels. And that includes the renewable diesel figures that we've been monitoring closely. And keep in mind, renewable diesel chemically is basically the same as regular diesel. The refinement process is very similar as well. And the real attraction of renewable diesel is that it is compliant with the low carbon fuel standard that has been implemented in California and that we've seen a lot of other states adopt subsequently. That has triggered a look at the entire fuel sector and has many of the fuel refiners expanding investments in soybean crush facilities so they can take the soybean oil from those facilities and use it as part of either full replacement of diesel or a blended version to meet the low carbon fuel standard and sell into these state markets. We've seen commitments through 2025 in the private sector world to reach up to nearly 6 billion gallons per year of renewable diesel. The EPA renewable volume obligations only account for less than half of that expanded capacity, saying 
the minimum blending is going to reach two and a half billion gallons by 2025. So there's a little bit of a mismatch between what the private sector expects and what the minimum floor is. My caution to everybody is don't freak out about it because it's a minimum floor. That doesn't necessarily mean that market factors don't incentivize further blending and really will reach that expected capacity. But the other flip side to it, too, is that you kind of have to look at soybean planted area and say, will we reach it, though? I think many producers are looking at the market at what it is today and saying the prices right now, with it being the, you know, if not the most expensive crop put into the ground, a very expensive crop nonetheless, the margins work out better to plant corn. I don't think this decision really had too much influence in planting decisions or lack of planting and deciding to plant soybeans. But looking at a long-term outlook, we do have to see soybean producers rise to the occasion to meet this demand. But I think price will incentivize that. With higher demand and neutral to lower supply comes higher prices. And so that will incentivize the soybean planted area. I think the other thing we have to keep in mind, too, is that soybeans right now are still concentrated in planted areas east, you know, the Dakotas, Nebraska, Kansas, and eastward to the coast. And so it's not really a, a area that the West can take advantage of just yet. And we did see a lot more corn acres planted over there. So a long way of saying, I don't know that there is any connection to the future of renewable diesel and, and the future use of soybeans impacting this particular year's planting decisions. What I do think long-term is that the entire industry and farmers especially are going to need to take a look at where the opportunities are and how those commodity prices will react to some of these new industry initiatives. So I want to ask one last question. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. It's been incredibly insightful. We talk a lot about South America and they continue to grow as a key competitor of ours, how do we currently stack up price-wise against South America? Maybe Brazil specifically, since Argentina has struggled tremendously with production the last few years. And secondary to that, as they are beginning to think about planting this fall, how could some of these prices impact decisions that they might be making? Well, right now, Brazil is still on track to have a record corn soybean production crop. They're in the midst of harvesting all eyes are on that market. I think we've talked a little bit here. We've talked a lot across the EverAg channels that Brazil and Argentina do not have the climate nor the infrastructure to store grain long term. So as they harvest a record crop, Brazil record, Argentina being drought stricken, but as they harvest their crops, they have to offload as quickly as possible and put it out on the global market or use it up domestically as quickly as possible. They don't have the ability to store. And so that tends to mean that their harvest price, which is happening right now, is going to be even lower than what it normally would because they can supply it as quickly as possible. So as of this week, Brazil was running about 73 cents a bushel lower than the U.S. price. Argentina was about 43 cents lower than the U.S. price out on the global export FOB price market on corn. For soybeans, we were seeing Brazil run about $1.54 lower than the U.S. price and Argentina running about 48 cents per bushel lower than the U.S. price for soybean exports. So I kind of set it up to contextualize it that Right now, we're going to see 
drastically lower prices because it's in the middle of harvest and they're offloading it as quickly as possible. But they also have a record crop. They're cheaper. And they're going to look at what the U.S. planting decisions are and likely make decisions based on that. So there's a good chance that we'll see higher soybean acres come to fruition later this year when they're making their planting decisions. You have El Nino transitioning down in Argentina away from La Nina. So the drought-stricken areas that they've had this past year will likely get rains that have been much needed and welcomed and you know, will pull them out of drought and help Argentina's crop rebound for this next year. And that's going to not only impact the soybean markets, but then also soybean meal and soybean oil. You know, Argentina is one of the largest soybean meal exporters in the globe, too. So competition wise, you know, you can't take your eye off the competition by any means, but they're going to look at what the U.S. is doing and, and make decisions based off that. And I anticipate that they'll see an opportunity to increase soybean purchases, primarily, too, because our soybean prices are going to be higher with those tighter ending stocks there's an opportunity for them to come even lower than our U.S. price out on the global market. Lots to monitor, lots to watch, Shelby. All eyes will absolutely remain on the production estimates, the demand estimates, and our neighbors to the south this year. Thank you for sharing your insights with us today. We look forward to having you on again. If you've enjoyed listening to From the Furrow, feel free to subscribe to our podcast, give us a like, or share our podcast with a friend. Thanks to Corey Romero, our producer, and Paige Driscoll for mixing and mastering today's production. 